Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, I don't really have any no complaints, I guess. How about yourself? Good. I went shopping with your mom today. That's right. My mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. It was nice. You got a really nice coat and some really nice boots. Yeah, I got treated, but it did tucker me out. Shopping always tuckers me out. So we'll see how this movie goes. Hopefully you don't fall asleep. I don't think so. You don't really fall asleep in movies. You're not that kind of person usually. Like, unless I'm dying. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just completely exhausted. <laughs> um, what are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching The Amazing Mr. X, also known as The Spiritualist, from 1948. Any relation with uh, Dr. X or his return? No, not at all. Okay. Yeah. Distant cousins, then. No. <laughs> so... Like a lot of these movies we've been seeing in the late 1940s, this one is kind of a genre mix, mm-hmm. and we'll probably end up having to make like a, is this horror or not kind of call on it. Sure. Um, I've seen it described as horror, I've seen it described as thriller, and I've seen it described as film noir, which I feel like that just comes from people seeing a movie from the late 40s, seeing that it's got like high contrast lighting, and it's in black and white, and going, well, it's one of those. Yeah, it's like when we saw all these German films being described as horror just because they are German expressionists. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So The Amazing Mr. X comes to us courtesy of Eagle Lion Pictures. Okay. And we've talked about Eagle Lion before on the show a few times in relation to other companies, but this is the first like, actual release from them that we are seeing. They've absorbed PRC at this point? Yes. So, um, to quickly give their backstory, uh, Eagle Lion was founded by British industrialist J. Arthur Rank, who, in addition to many other holdings, controlled most of the British film industry at this time. He founded Eagle Lion in the United States as a vehicle for distributing his British films in the United States. Rank also bought PRC so that he would have a steady stream of B-movies to pair with his British movies that Eagle Lion was releasing. And then, eventually, Rank got control of Universal Studios through the Universal International merger, which meant that he now had a source of American A-pictures as well. And that led to the closing of Universal's B-unit, because he owned PRC, why did he need Universal to be making bees? And then that led to Eagle Lion just absorbing PRC, because why have, like, all these different companies, basically? Yeah. Like, it makes sense on paper. When you see it happening, it just seems so, like, chaotic and awful. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, his decisions make sense from a business point of view, but Mm -hmm. it well, and it's also that, like, 
at this period in history, people still took antitrust laws seriously. Yeah. So it's not as straightforward as, like, today, where it's just like, yeah, Disney bought it. Now it's Disney. It's it's a Disney thing. It's yeah. Disney Disney. Like, it's, it's having Disney to... There's Disney Prime. Right. And there's... <laughs> but, like, here it's, like, this one guy who owns a lot of different things or, like, owns them through different things or whatever because he can't just have one big company called, like, Rank Pictures or whatever. So it was in August of 1947 that Eagle Lion dissolved PRC. And what this meant was that Eagle Lion was now producing their own films because before they had just been distributing ranks British films. Now they were actually making the films that PRC would have been making. Yeah. So as a United States company, uh, Eagle Lion was under the control of entertainment lawyer Arthur Krim. He was sort of the uh, like chief executive officer, I guess you could say. Um, the executive in charge of production was Brian Foy, the former B-movie producer at Warner Brothers, who had lost that job when Warners got rid of their B-unit. The initial plan was to produce five films a year for less than $500,000 per film. So that's sort of like more than any Poverty Row studio was spending on movies on average, but less than like what your big A pictures at the majors were. Five movies a year is also mm -hmm. a very small number. Mm -hmm. We were seeing studios pump out like a movie a week, you know? Yeah. So five a year is a significant reduction. Yeah, and you're seeing that kind of reduction coming from all the studios in general, yeah. but uh, yes. Is that just because not as many people are going to see the theaters? Yeah, or attendance is, that is down. Okay. Right, we talked about how 1946 was the most profitable year, and then because the television came in, everything's... The theaters are suddenly struggling. Yeah, I mean, essentially, 1946 was the the highest attendance year, basically, mm -hmm. and everything just drops off from there. So, with this plan, um, Eagle Lion actually ended up recording a loss of $2.2 million at the end of 1947, um, and that's sort of on what films they had produced since absorbing PRC, I guess yeah. you could say. Yeah. Um, the company attempted to course correct after this by focusing on production value instead of star power. So the idea was to make B-movies at a lower budget with, like, the same kind of actors you'd normally see in B-movies, but to shoot them to look like A-pictures. Okay, I can get behind the strategy there. So they began to see some luck with uh, this strategy by producing a series of stylish films noir, and by the end of 1948, they had produced 14 films in all, uh, five of which were big hits, two of which broke even. That's pretty good. Breaking even on any film is pretty dang good. Yeah, so the math there, if you're following along, means that seven of the 14 did not make money. For uh, 1948, they showed a profit of $200,000. At least they're not in the red. <laughs> their most successful film was their release in the United States of Rank's British film, the Red Shoes, which made $5 million in the U.S. and was nominated for Best Picture. Eagle Lion continued to have financial difficulties through 1949 and ultimately was shut down at the end of that year. Uh, Krim was offered the leadership of United Artists, 
which he took and did very successfully by from 1950 to 1978. Uh, and then after that, he founded Orion Pictures. Mm. Brian Foy, meanwhile, was hired back by Warner Brothers in 1950 when that studio sort of started making B-movies again. Um, and then he would leave Warner's for Columbia in 1954. So the film was originally titled The Mystic. The story was written by Crane Wilbur, and PRC bought it with Wilbur signed to direct. Now Wilbur, he's someone that we've run into before. He came to Hollywood in 1910 at 24 years old. He was an actor, and in that capacity he is best known as the male lead in the classic serial The Perils of Pauline from 1914. As acting jobs began to dry up for him, he turned to writing and later directing. In 1924, he wrote the play The Monster to compete with The Bat. Oh, yeah. Now I remember who this guy is. Since then, he's written and directed many different films, and uh, here we are running into him again. Yeah. So after PRC was folded into Eagle Lion, the story was retooled into a vehicle for Turhan Bay. Uh, whose contract had been sold to Eagle Lion by Universal after Bay had refused a film they wanted him to do. Oh, no. Now, we remember Turan Bay from films like The Mummy's Tomb, Captive Wild Woman, The Mad Ghoul, and The Climax. He was sort of a minor star at Universal, um, primarily thanks to like his exotic looks, which made him like a, a sort of romantic lead figure. Uh, he starred in a lot of Universal's Arabian Nights series of movies. Yeah. His he had film... better luck in adventure stuff rather than horror. Yes. His film career kind of stalled uh, when Turkey entered World War II. He was Turkish. And he... I'm not quite sure how this works, but he was exempt from service in the U.S. Army because Turkey wasn't in the war. But when Turkey was in the war, he was drafted into the U.S. Army not really sure how that works, but he served 18 months in World War II, and during that period away, his film career kind of stalled. When he came back is when Universal offered him this movie that he didn't want to do, and so they just were like, okay, and sold his contract off to Eagle Lion. Now, the screenplay, based on Wilbur's story, was ultimately written by Muriel Bolton, then had rewrites done on it by Ian McClellan Hunter. Now, Hunter is probably best remembered today for what he didn't write. Okay. Uh, he is best remembered as fronting for the blacklisted screenwriter Dalton Trumbo in 1953 for the script for Roman Holiday. Okay, yeah. Directing the film is Bernard Vorhaus. Uh, this was to be the first in a two-picture deal for him at Eagle Lion. Now, Vorhaus had started as a writer in Hollywood in 1925, and had been directing since 1931, primarily B-movies. The film's producer is Benjamin Stoloff, who directed The Mysterious Doctor in 1943. Yeah, yeah, his name is familiar. So the film entered production under the title The Spiritualist. Okay, so second name change. Yes. Or first name change. Yes. The cinematographer was John Alton who at the time was one of the most sought-after film noir directors of photography of this period. Alton would later win an Oscar for 1951's An American in Paris, and in 1949 he wrote the seminal book 
Painting with Light, uh, a book on cinematography, the first such work by a cinematographer. Uh, and it's still considered sort of foundational reading today. And it features examples from this film very prominently throughout. Oh, neat. We have previously seen Alton's work in The Lady and the Monster. Yeah, I thought his name was familiar. Joining Turhan Bay in the cast are actresses Lynn Barry and Kathy O'Donnell. Now, Barry was a 35-year-old actress who primarily appeared as femme fatales in 20th Century Fox films. She had been put under contract with them when she was 22 years old. She spent many years in uncredited bit parts, but by the 1940s, she had started to appear in more notable roles, typically as a villainess. During World War II, she was a popular pinup girl, but her film career fizzled out in the 1950s, and she made the move to television, playing matronly roles instead of temptresses. That's kind of a fun transition. Huh. Kathy O'Donnell appears in this film on loan from Samuel Goldwyn. She was born Anne Steely in 1923, and she left home in Oklahoma for Hollywood to become an actress after seeing the movie Wuthering Heights at age 16. She changed her first name to Kathy after the protagonist of Wuthering Heights. She caught the attention of Goldwyn's agents, in L.A., and she was put under contract to the producer, who gave her diction lessons to rid her of her southern accent. Goldwyn's wife gave her the last name O'Donnell under the rationale that audiences loved actresses with Irish last names. Sure. Her first major role was as Wilma in 1946's highly acclaimed The Best Years of Our Lives. She appeared in the lead in RKO's 1948 film noir, They Live by Night, the first film directed by Nicholas Ray. Her biggest film, if not her biggest role, was Ben-Hur in 1959. Oh, she, she was Ben-Hur? No. She, <laughs> that's why it's not her biggest role. Yeah. <laughs> she played the title character's sister. Ah, Betty-Hur. She retired from acting in 1964 and she passed away in 1970 of cerebral hemorrhage. Oh, shit. Filming took place over three weeks in January of 1948, and the film was released on July 29th of that year. Sometime after shooting was completed, the film's title was changed. But I have seen multiple contradictory explanations for this change. Okay. So the ultimate title was The Amazing Mr. X. Mm -hmm. But I've seen that, say, The Spiritualist was the title in UK markets, and they changed it to The Amazing Mr. X for the US. But I have also seen that The Spiritualist was the US title, and The Amazing Mr. X was the UK title. I have seen it said that The Spiritualist was the original title, and The Amazing Mr. X was the re-release title. Uh, but the re-release for the film happened after Eagle Lion stopped existing. Uh, the re-release was handled by a company called Samba Films. And all of the Samba Films prints say The Amazing Mr. X on them, but there are still prints that say Eagle Lion on them that have The Amazing Mr. X title. So my conclusion is that both titles were used simultaneously in different markets, uh, whether one was U.S. or one was U.K., 
I feel like the Spiritualist would be the UK title and the Amazing Mr. X would be the US title. But like I said, I've seen it go both ways. You know, hearing that there are people behind the scenes in this movie on like the production side of everything who are from Warner Brothers, Mm. where we've seen Dr. X and the return of Dr. X, I feel like that's probably where the inspiration for something Mr. X comes Mm. from. Maybe. Yeah. So Eagle Lion was pretty happy with the movie. It was mildly successful with audiences and critics. Crane Wilbur would go on to write many more films for Eagle Lion, like their successful film noir, He Walked by Night, which was also shot by John Alton. Bernard Vorhaus, however, was terminated from his contract when he refused to shoot the next film that was offered to him, I Married a Communist. <laughs> Listen, he has he not seen I Walked with a Zombie? Like, it, you can turn something that has a title like that into something better. I think perhaps the problem might become clearer when you learn that in 1951, he would be blacklisted from Hollywood by the House on Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, so he was trying to avoid being, like, labeled as a communist already. Or potentially he just didn't want to make a movie that was, like, derogatory to communists. But regardless, it's clear that, like, That's where his sympathies lay, or at least they lay in a left-leaning direction, uh, and that got him in trouble later. Is the movie I Married a Communist, like, derogatory to communists? I have no idea. I've never seen it, so... I know nothing about the movie. Okay. I'm not even sure if it ended up getting made or not. (laughs) Now, when Eagle Lion dissolved, the copyright on The Amazing Mr. X was allowed to lapse resulting in many public domain copies of primarily poor quality on VHS, DVD, and now online. Image Entertainment put out a high-quality release in 2006, and if you're going to buy the movie on DVD, that's my recommendation. In 2010, the picture was added to Sony's print-on-demand DVD program, and that release is fuzzier in picture, than the image release, but it does have the distinction of being the only release since 1948 to have the spiritualist title card on it. Uh, So that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, So what we will be watching is the image release, uh, which we have up on our YouTube playlist. Great. Well, folks, if you want to watch along, head to our YouTube playlist on our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Amazing Mr. X, a.k.a. The Spiritualist, from 1948, directed by Bernard Vorhaus. See you on the other side, everybody. to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Amazing Mr. X, aka The Spiritualist, from 1948, directed by Bernard Vorhaus. Ben, what did you think? I really enjoyed this. It's Uh, a lot of fun. It's a really good, fun movie that is done really well. 
yeah, it's a shame that it is in the public domain. Well, actually, it's not, because then anyone can go watch it. But it's a shame that it's kind of, like, been lost to time a little bit. Yeah. Like, and... tears in rain. <laughs> and, uh... A lot of the copies floating around out there are really subpar. Um, the one that's on our YouTube playlist is the best online copy that I can find. Yeah, and um, it, it's still just like a little fuzzy. Yeah. Like, I, just a little fuzzy. I think there's maybe a quote-unquote more official release on Amazon Prime. Um, but honestly, because it's a public domain movie, that could just be anybody putting something up. Um, we don't have Amazon Prime, so I can't speak to what the quality of that version is like. But if you are looking around, that might be a place to look for, like, a superior copy. Um, yeah, but it's a really good movie. Um, it's a shame that it isn't horror. Oh. I think it is. Oh, no. Okay. Well, we can get there. First, I need to tell people what it's about. Yeah, for sure. Christine Faber is a rich, young widow, like, middle-aged. Yeah, I got the sense that she was maybe in her 30s. Yeah, middle-aged. Mm -hmm. Living in her cliffside manor with her sister Janet. Christine thinks she can hear her late husband Paul calling on the wind, but Janet urges her to stop looking to the past, and when are you finally going to say yes when your beau, Martin, proposes? That night, Christine is walking along the beach to Martin's house when this apparent kind of haunting and spookiness intensifies. She runs along the beach straight into Alexis, who is Turhan Bay, uh, who claims to be a mystic, a psychic. He certainly does seem to know a lot about Christine and Martin. She eventually meets up with Martin and does say yes to the proposal. But she's clearly worried about how that might upset the dead Paul. Yeah, it might upset her husband's ghost. Yeah, exactly. That night, she has more of a, uh, a more intense haunting experience. She wakes up again hearing um, his voice, Paul's voice on the wind, and her wedding dress appears and floats toward her, and she ends up screaming and fainting. But everything can kind of be explained away as if she's having a nightmare. But she's still worried, so Christine goes to see Alexis for spiritual comfort. Fast forward several weeks, and Christine has repeatedly been going to see Alexis and turning down seeing Martin. Janet and Martin hire a detective to find out what is up with Alexis, what is going on at this house. And they find that Alexis has a criminal past. Janet goes to dig deeper and ends up believing his illusions and believing in the charm. And it's at this point in time that the movie goes, Alexis is a fraud. Mm -hmm. He's just a trickster. Yeah, his, his criminal past has to do with him getting caught, like, fleecing old ladies for money, basically, with this same kind of shtick. Yes. Um, but yeah, Janet rolls real low on her charisma saving throw. <laughs> Things come to a head when Martin and the detective barge in on a seance with Janet, Christine, and Alexis. Um, during that scene, we get to see uh, film effects showing the quote-unquote ghosts, but then we also cut to behind the scenes with Alexis running the show, mm -hmm. as it were. 
but when Martin and the detective come in, um, Alexis has to sit at the table and he's no longer able to pull off his illusions and he's forced to continue the seance. And that's when Paul's apparition appears. The look on Alexis's face as like the ghostly hauntings continue when like he knows that he's not doing anything is pretty great. It's great. Everyone leaves after, um, and Alexis is like, I need a drink. And Paul appears again. Turns out he's alive and has a plan. You see, Paul didn't die in a car crash two years ago. Apparently, and this is kind of sprinkled in a little bit earlier, uh, he was married before Christine, and this ex-wife apparently wanted more money from Paul. So it was actually she who died in the car. But because Paul is now declared legally dead, uh, he's been lying low, and he can kind of get away with anything. But he needs money, so he has a plan for Alexis to get with Janet and get married with her so that they will get the estate, while Paul continues to drive Christine towards suicide or accidental death. Because Paul is legally dead, he coerces Alexis into going along with this plan um, because he's like, I could kill you and no one would have any idea it was me. Yeah, no one would come looking for me. Why would they think I did it? Yeah. I'm dead. Yeah, exactly. And, like, Alexis can't tell on him because then he'd have to reveal that Paul is alive, and revealing that Paul is alive would mean having to reveal that he is a fake medium. Mm-hmm. Paul's plan is going well. Um, they've put in a hidden radio in Christine's room to kind of continue the haunting and uh, kind of intensify it. The maid is in on it, too, by the way. The maid is on Turhan Bay's payroll. Yeah, that's how they've been getting all the extra information about uh, Christine so that he can seem psychic, is he just has, like, a spy working in her house. <laughs> and they give Christine some hot, drugged milk, <laughs> um, as is certainly becoming a trope in these movies now, um, so that she will be drugged and dazed. Alexis and Janet go on a romantic walk to the beach, and as Christine is drugged on the couch, uh, Paul appears and coaxes her down the coast along the cliffs. Alexis and Janet are getting pretty cozy when they hear a scream as Christine tumbles down the cliffs. She's okay, though. They kind of catch her in time before she fully falls to her death, but, you know, almost was killed, seemingly by a ghost. So Janet is now taking care of Christine, and in her room, she starts to hear Paul's voice and music, because Paul is a pianist. Um, she starts to hear Paul's voice, but she's like, mm, something doesn't sound right, because that record playing the music just skipped. So she starts investigating the room and finds a hidden radio. Janet goes to confront Alexis, thinking, you've been playing this up? Like, what the fuck? And she finds Paul as well, so now the whole gig is up. Paul tries to pull a gun on Janet, but Alexis steps in and attacks Paul, and in the struggle, he gets shot. Janet, of course, runs away, manages to get a call out to Martin, not the police, what are you doing, girl? Um, before Paul cuts the phone lines. 
I think this is the first time that we see phone lines being cut in the climax like this. Yeah, well... You and see them kind of pulled out to, like, hide the murder or something, but yeah. not in a climactic moment like this. And he's down in, like, the basement, too, where all, like, the breakers are and stuff, right? So, Paul cuts the phone lines. Paul follows Janet up to Christine's room, uh, planning to murder them both with his gun, when suddenly the lights go out, and Alexis begins his haunting performance. And he does this to uh, have a really fun climactic scene, but also um, to bide time with Paul until the cops arrive. And the cops do arrive, and they shoot and kill Paul. Alexis does die of his injuries on the couch in Janet's arms. Now, throughout this, uh, Alexis has a pet raven, which sounds like he like swallowed a kazoo or something. Like <laughs> He needs like a lozenge or something. Um, but this raven is really cool, does tricks, like, gets him a cigarette. It's really cool. Um, but it's implied that, like, the raven, like, knows things. <laughs> and then at the end, when Alexis is going to die, he asks Janet to open the door and tells the raven, I no longer need you, my friend. And the raven flies away into the sunset. Or the sunrise, I guess, technically. So some spooky, eerie things there. The end. <laughs> I don't know if I consider the raven spooky or eerie, but... Um, it's a raven. It's just inherently spooky and eerie. Fair. That's why they're using it. Fair. We already know that we apparently have a disagreement about the genre of this movie. Yes. Um, but we can handle that when we get to ranking. Okay. So... The cinematography by John Alton is just... Chef's Kiss, amazing. Yeah, it's off the chain. It's so, so good. The way that they use the cinematography, the lighting especially, because cinematography is more than that, but the, the camera movement is, is supporting this, um, to manage the mood mm -hmm. it, and manage the tension. Yeah. It's really well done. There's this one part where um, it's when we, we, the audience, think the haunting is real, like there's spooky things going on in the house. And Christine thinks that, like, Paul's ghost is in the house. And um, she's clearly freaked out. But Martin is like, no, we're getting married. Let's have a drink. Let's kiss and hug and whatever. And there's a big painting of Paul on the wall. And there's, it's not quite a spotlight, but there's a bit of light shining on the face. So that's in focus as we see Christine and Martin come together in an embrace. Just like certain things like that where it almost feels as if the lighting is representing the ghost in a way, uh, is representing the tension around like I'm being haunted. Well, and on top of the lighting too, like this movie's really good at showing you how to use framing because the other thing is like, yes, there's a light on Paul's face, but the face is also positioned in the frame directly between Christine and Martin. Um, and there's really good framing throughout the movie. Stuff where people are in extreme close-up, but then there's something going on in the back, like far background, like a lot of use of depth in the framing. Um, a lot of use of shots that aren't just your typical long shot, medium shot, close-up kind of setups. Um, you know, using framing and blocking creatively, which is all stuff that like, you're supposed to just do in movies, but we're used to seeing be, like these B movies that don't put that much effort in. 
Um, so it was just a real treat to get cinematography as good as this. Um, speaking of the sequence where Christine believes the ghost, and at that point the audience does too, um, I don't think this movie is horror, but I will say that the wedding dress ghost sequence is more frightening and effective than, like, 80% of the horror movies of the last 10 years. Yeah, it's really well done. Um, it's just really well done. Like, the hairs on my arms were standing up. Yeah, you were yelping. I was just like, ah! I, yeah, I thought it was funny because at one point um, she, like, sees the dress and, like, um, her back is to the camera. This is Christine I'm talking about. And then she turns to face the camera... Um, kind of a mid shot as so we can see her reaction but I just imagine the idea of like I'm just going to turn away from this ghost and pretend it's not there and then turn back and it's still there and the sequence is really clever because it ramps things up in a way that helps sort of you know turn the screws of that tension you know first it's the voice on the wind and then the you know French doors blow open on the balcony and then She's got, like, a picture of Martin and the engagement ring he gave her and, like, a corsage he gave her on, like, a bedside table. And the picture gets, like, knocked over. And she, you know, she she gets up out of bed to, like, see what's going on. And the corsage has, like, wilted. And the ring, like, doesn't have a diamond on it anymore. And the pictures turn to a picture of Paul. And, like, so there's all these things to, like, kind of get her in an addled state of mind before this like ghostly apparition starts coming at her that helps you buy it that she doesn't sort of like immediately just go like, wait, what? Like, what the fuck? Like her brain has been primed to believe ghost, right? Absolutely. And I think one of the clever things the movie does, I think I need to back up a bit, actually. So I, IRL, I do not care for mediums. I do not like them. Yeah. I don't like their whole, like, business. You also don't like ghosts. Right. You don't believe in them, and you find the idea of them actually existing kind of freaky. Upsetting. But you don't actually believe in them. Right. And I don't like mediums because since I don't believe in ghosts and I don't believe in being able to be psychic and call upon the afterlife and so on, mostly I just see mediums as, like, you know, what Alexis is in this movie, which is charlatans using people's grief to, like, scam them out of money, right? And I really hate that. Um, now, on the other hand, you do believe in, like, ghosts and mediums and stuff. Yes. And that sort of splits us on, like, very stereotyped gender lines. Yeah, sure. Like, it's, it's kind of a stereotypical thing that, like, oh, men don't believe in ghosts and women do. And the movie does that as well, where the women, um, Christine and Janet, are, like, gullible and fall for Alexis. And the men, you know, uh, there's Martin, who's, like, a lawyer, and his one character trait is that he's, like, pragmatic. And then there's, like, the detective who knows how to see through the tricks. And so, like, they're logical and rational, and they don't believe in this silly stuff. But something that the movie did that I really appreciated is that it fleshes out Christine and Janet as characters enough that you understand why they get duped. Like, we see sort of everything being done to Christine that amps it up to the point where you can understand why she's in a frame of mind to believe it. And we see, 
you know, Alexis turn the charm on Janet, you know, one step at a time enough that you can believe the way that she falls for him. Because mostly the way she falls for his stuff is he plays to her ego and she's supposed to be like, I think in her early twenties or something. And so like, that's totally the age where if an adult like actually pays attention to you and tells you like, yeah, you're smart and you, you're, you figure things out and you're really good at stuff. You're mature for your age. Right. Exactly. But like, you're going to fall for that kind of thing. Right. So I just, I just really appreciated that so that even though those gender stereotypes are in the film, it's not entirely just like, Oh, the women fall for it because women are stupid. Yeah, I think further to your point, too, um, because I I noted that as well, but I think, for me, the reason why I didn't feel silly to believe in this or feel like they were painting the women as silly or suckers or idiots um, is because the illusions that we see are done with real film effects as if it was a real haunting. Yes. You know, like, the way that we see the wedding gown. It's not like we see strings. Mm -hmm. Like, during that point you are supposed to believe that this is a real haunting. Yeah. Even during the seance when it's supposed to be ghosts or haunting or spooky music, we might see a little bit behind the scenes in terms of, like, why there's a chill wind coming in or why we're hearing music, but any kind of visual effects are done through the medium of film. Yeah. So because that was real, it didn't feel like I was being mocked or made to feel silly for believing in these things. Right, yeah, because essentially they've made the decision to use visual effects instead of special effects, which means that, like, yeah, from... And they do that whenever we're from Christine and Janet's point of view, basically, right? So, yeah, I totally see what you're saying, that, like, that helps reinforce, like, how convincing Alexis's stuff is. Something that they do that's really smart is reveal to you that it's a fraud early because that sort of allows the movie by showing you how some of his tricks work and just sort of telling you like, yeah, he's a fraud. Mm -hmm. It lets them use tricks that like are kind of more elaborate and like shouldn't really be things that you could pull off because they're pulling them off using visual effects and they don't have to explain how he did them because we already know he's a fraud. We already know that everything's fake. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I wanted the haunting to be real, but I did really enjoy seeing how some of these illusions were done. Some of them were really clever. Like for instance, when someone off the street comes into uh, the House of Horrors, Alexis's House of Horrors, um, they will write down a question on a notepad and then keep that to themselves because that's the question that they're going to ask Alexis. And he, quote-unquote, knows what the question is because um, he has access to basically a carbon copy version of what they've written underneath. And that's really clever. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I enjoy being able to see these types of things. Yeah, it's it's fun to, like... Because we get run through his routine once from, like, Christine's point of view, and then we get it from, like, basically Alexis's point of view. And the second time around, like, it's fun to see things like how he directs people to look in one direction while he, like, runs from off stage yes. to be in position so that when they turn around, it seems like he's come out of nowhere. Yeah. It's really fun. <laughs> yeah, I think... All of this leads me to talk about part of the genre question with this movie, because 
because I decided it wasn't horror, I was trying to figure out what it was then, right? And it's kind of akin to mystery, but you can't really call it a mystery movie because we know the answer, you know, a third of the way in, right? And thriller might be apt as a description, but I'm not really sure about that either. The DNA feels like old dark house kind of movies, but it's not really that either. Um, so I, I don't really think the movie, you know, I don't think the filmmakers were really thinking about this movie in terms of like blockbuster video style genres, <laughs> um, where you can easily sort of box something in. But I do think the movie is operating on a tradition of storytelling, an older filmmaking tradition. What's sort of neat is because of the mix of writers on this, the movie's sort of this interesting blend of very old-fashioned and then, like, very modern. Yeah. Um, Because we have Crane Wilbur, who wrote The Monster in the 20s, right? And And I feel like that's where some of the, um, some of Alexis's tricks come in. Well, yeah, because it feels like a 1920s or 30s fake psychic movie, right? Like, that's the basic plot. That's what this is. Like, this is, you know, the kind of movie where we reveal at the end how all the ghost stuff was done because it turns out this guy's just like a scammer who's trying to get your money or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, And what makes it feel new and not sort of corny and old hat is, you know, the fact that we're revealing that it's a fraud early on. And little by little, too. We don't get to see... It's not like we stop the film to go, like, and here's how I did that, and here's how I did this. Yes, and that's something I really appreciated because... It all makes you feel a lot less cheated than you do when you watch those old fake psychic movies mm-hmm. where everything just gets explained in the last five minutes. It feels more like you're being let in on a secret. Yeah, exactly. The, you know, it's fun, yeah. right? And to see how all this stuff is being done, the characters are being hoodwinked, not the audience. And because we are let in on the fraudulent nature of things, we don't need to have, here's how he pulled this off explanations, which are always really tedious, right? Yeah. Um, The other thing that makes the movie feel much more modern, uh, other than, of course, the amazingly good cinematography, is... And special effects. Yeah. Is the kind of, like, post-Luton focus on psychology. Yeah. Like, Alexis's tricks are effective because they're good, but they're mostly effective because he does like all this psychological research on his marks uh, so that he knows how to like slowly amp it up and basically gaslight them. Yeah, and the way that the cinematography, specifically the lighting, is working to support or underline that psychology. I don't know if we would have a movie of this ilk without luton without gaslight mm-hmm. without the uninvited sure yeah absolutely yeah this is like if the uninvited lost its nerve you know right i mean i think it, it is like this is what i mean it's so fascinating to see a movie like this that is such a blend of like some stuff that's very old-fashioned by this point right like all of the fake psychic stuff is like 20 year old tropes but they feel fresh they don't feel like a slog because of the way the movie's structured and how it's shot and mm-hmm. all this other stuff. The acting is really, really well done yes. all through here. Um, 
I think to your point earlier, having Janet and Christine be a bit more well developed mm-hmm. really helps with that. Um, I think the most shallow person here is Martin and Paul. <laughs> yeah, Martin's about as one-dimensional as a piece of cardboard. And Paul is like maybe two-dimensional as well, a piece of cardboard. So I actually really enjoyed Donald Curtis, who plays Paul. He gives a really fun, good performance. Yeah, but he the really... character is, is pretty... Well, that's the thing. I think if there's a weak point to this movie, I think it's Paul. Because I don't really get what his deal is. Yeah, we don't really understand his plan. Like, his whole thing of, like, let's kill Christine, and then you can marry Janet and get the estate so I can get money, is very, like, that's... There are many steps to that. He, and he can't just come out and say, hey, Christine, I'm actually alive, because then people will go, like, then who is the body in the car crash? Mm-hmm. And he'll be, like, put up for murder. So there are reasons why he can't come forward, but it feels like, dude, like, I mean, I guess it's two years later, and that's why he's finally come to this plan to get money. But yeah. Like, there's, it, there's, it, it only makes sense on, like, the most surface level of analyses. Yeah, like, Paul is a lot of fun and Donald Curtis is a lot of fun in the role because he gets to show up in the third act and be like this new second villain basically uh, who then gets to hold things over Alexis and especially when he first shows up and nobody knows that it's just Paul alive like even Alexis you know Alexis is really like sweating because it's like wait what that was like a real ghost I don't understand you know and even (laughs) Even just Paul being back from the dead kind of gives him the power of a ghost and gives him that kind of intimidation factor, and all of that's really effective. But, yeah, when you step back and look at it, it's like, okay, so, Paul was married to his first wife in Las Vegas. Well, it's implied that he's had many wives before. Like, he definitely had a first wife. The Las Vegas wife might not be that first wife. Right. Because there was something about, like, divorce payments and things. I don't understand, like, his shtick. Because if he was, like, a bluebeard, where it's like he marries a wealthy woman, kills her, gets her money, moves on to the next woman. Like, that's something. But that's not really what we're told his, like, game is. It's like he marries wealthy women and divorces them and then just, like, collects alimony or something. (laughs) Which is bizarre. And then, yeah, he marries... Christine, and the version of Paul that we hear about from Christine is, like, not the guy that we meet later. And I get that part of that's about, like, how he would have, you know, manipulated her and so on and so forth. But, like, the Paul that we hear about from her is, like, this pianist who, like, loved to swim and was, like, really romantic and all of this kind of stuff. And the Paul that we see is, like, you know, like Lex Luthor. Like, he's, like, a dastardly (laughs) villain. You know, and it's implied that, like, he uses the piano in different ways to, like, seduce different wives based on, like, their psychologies or whatever. And it's like, wait, 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 Why did you fake your death, though? Yeah, it was because the ex-wife wanted more money or something. Right. So he had to kill her, but then he's like, oh, but I don't want to be found. So, yeah, it, it, it doesn't make sense. adds up. Yeah, he, it doesn't make sense why he faked his death. Like, just kill the wife and, and <laughs> like... You know, make it look like an accident or something. Scream scene does not condone the murdering of wives. No. Or husbands. No, yeah. But, like, if your plan is kill the wife, then make it look like an accident or something. Don't 
be like, oh, that's my body in the car. And then, like... But see, he learned from his mistake. That's why he's making Christine's death look like an accident. Well, for sure. And then it's like, he's out of money, and it's like, you could have killed Christine. Like, like if the, if the first yeah. wife's asking for more money, and your plan to get more money two years later is get it from Christine's, like, wealthy estate or whatever the fuck, which is never really explained why Christine is, like, just, like... Bruce Wayne levels of wealthy. Oh, because they're orphans, Ben. That's why they were like, oh, it's our dad in ghost no, no, form. I, I mean, I got that they were orphans, but how does that make them wealthy? Because all of the parents' money... They they had to have been wealthy yes, before. Yes, yes, yeah, they're, the parents had to have been... They're money, Ben. Yeah, okay, okay, <laughs> But okay. they have the money because cool. their parents right, are right, dead. Cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I was just trying to figure out how being an orphan made you rich. Because that was, like, the way that you were saying it. was Listen, as if, like, they just hand orphans a million bucks. There's, there's two types of orphans, and they are on a spectrum. There's... Bruce Wayne, uh-huh. and then on the other end, there's Annie. Right. There's no in-between. So, what I'm trying to say... <laughs> and then even Annie gets adopted by, like, Lex Luthor. Yes. What I'm trying to say is that he should have just bumped Christine off, gotten her money then, and then used that to pay off the other wife. In the context setting, you mentioned how Eagle Lion's strategy was to give movies, like higher production value with Mm -hmm. still, like, the actors and maybe even the script that you'd get in a B-movie. Yeah. I think that strategy really comes off well here. You can really see that strategy in action, yeah. Yeah. I think part of it is the way that the cinematography and direction comes Mm -hmm. off, but um, the production value really... The size of this manor, and the fact that the manor isn't the same fucking house we've seen in the past 30 B-movies. It looks like they found a real cliffside house yeah. to kind of shoot at, and, and then maybe, like, base their sets on on the soundstage when they go to the interiors on, maybe. Absolutely. Um, but, like, they certainly, you know, there are times where the ocean has been, like, rear-projectioned in, like, in the shots where she's, like, hanging from that cliff, like... She's hanging from a set, and that's like rear projection. She's not really in any danger. But it's clear that they did go down to the ocean and, like, get shots for real. And, you know, there's the fact that there's really only two locations in this movie, her house and Alexis's house. But both of them are very elaborate locations that are very elaborately lit with elaborate layouts and blocking and things going on so that it's not like that B-movie feel of like, well, there's two locations. One of them is this square room and the other one is this other square room. Yeah, it gives it a lot of personality in a weird way, Um, but like something for you to enjoy even if it loses you on the way. Well, and... You know, it's kind of ironic to talk about in the context of a movie about, like, a, a fake medium, but, like, essentially the good production values are giving you, like, the illusion of a more expensive movie than it is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So before we move on to ranking, let's talk genre. hmm So in the context setting, you mentioned that this film has been described as horror, as thriller, and as film noir. Mm-hmm. I definitely don't think that this is film noir. Agreed. Um, because stark lighting does not equal film noir in and of itself, just like German Expressionism does not equal horror in and of itself. There are some, like, things that you, if you really wanted to, like, make a case, like, you could pull at some things like, oh, the characters have a mysterious past, and oh, like, you know, the the 
hero, quote unquote, if we're calling Alexis the hero, like dies at the end and, you know, this kind of stuff. But like, it's, that's some tenuous bullshit, you know? Yeah. So I definitely don't think it's film noir. I do think that there's something to be said about the thriller angle Mm -hmm. in the same way that Gaslight is a thriller, not a horror. Um, That there's crime elements, the conspiracy. However, I think because it relies on horror, um, especially in the first third, to establish the haunting, and the climax having this kind of home invasion feeling, um, it feels to me like this is more horror. Um, Especially because, like, I think because we, both as an audience and also for Janet and Christine, have no idea why the fuck Paul is suddenly coming to kill them. Mm. Like, it it feels like horror, like a, a killer's coming to get you. Okay. So I disagree, obviously. And a big part of it is I don't see that horror after the first third. The big horror scene in the movie is the wedding dress ghost sequence, which is great. Um, And that's before we know things are fraud. So that's scaring the audience along with the characters. The stuff at the end, the home invasion stuff, like, it's a very different kind of home invasion. Because it's not like Manson family stuff. Like, Paul's been hiding out in the basement, like, pulling (laughs) off schemes. The call was coming from inside the house. Right. And there's not really enough, I think, done with... Like, it's scary when Paul comes up to their room with the gun. But... To me, it felt more like thriller than horror because it was more of that sense of being scared for the characters, but I, as an audience member, did not feel scared. And the whole climax being kind of more of this cat and mouse gunfight thing with Alexis doesn't feel very horror to me at all. And there's nothing really too horrific because I felt like at a certain point, we lost Christine's point of view. Um, and it sort of switches to being Janet's point of view. And then when it's time for Alexis to have his like face turn, it kind of switches to his point of view. And so, you know, that feeling of like, what's going on and what's happening and, oh my God, Paul, like, what are you doing? And wait, why do you have a gun in her underlit suddenly? (laughs) Um, doesn't really land as being horrific for me because as the audience member, we're in on the other side of it. I guess so. Um, I still feel like it's horror because, like, you have the feeling of the conspiracy coming around these people, which I know can be said for thriller as well. Um, But, I mean, I was scared when Christine is drugged and following Paul. Sure. That was a a pretty spooky, scary sequence um, when she's walking along the ridge. Um, It was very tense. And... I don't know, maybe there's something there about, like, the fact that these women are being manipulated and taken advantage of, and um, that feeling a little close to home for me. I don't know, but I I do still stand with this being horror, especially, like, because we think that Alexis is dead until he, like, smashes the lights, right? So it seems like these chicks are just fucked. (laughs) Um... I didn't mention this, but, like, I kind of briefly mentioned how Christine is being driven to possibly suicide as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah. So, um, at one point, Janet rushes up because she hears, like, some kind of crash in Christine's room. And um, she looks over the balcony and she's concerned that Christine jumped. Right. So that's a tense moment. But Christine comes out of the bathroom with a jar of aspirin. 
And the way that she's like, oh, yeah, this aspirin is because I have a headache, almost was like she was going to take all those pills. Sure. So, like, just barely stopping her from committing suicide. Um, I don't know. It, it's, to me, this is horror. See, and I don't know if that's just like a, you're coming at this movie from a different place than I am thing. Because I will agree, absolutely, that all of those scenes were very tense. But, like, edge of your seat is what thrillers do. Like, that's kind of their deal, you mm-hmm. know? And so the thing is, is I didn't feel like, you know, the scene where she's off on the cliffs is scary in the sense of, like, oh, she might fall, which she does. But it's not scary in the sense of, like, you know, because at that point we know that that's not Paul's ghost. That's just Paul walking around and her vision's all blurry like that because she's drugged. And so it's it's scary in that tense kind of roller coaster kind of way, not in like a haunted house kind of way. You know, in the same way that like any kind of like hero in danger scene can be tense and scary that way. So at least that's where I, how I felt watching those scenes. Um, you know, and Paul, like Paul is a villain. There's just something about him. Like he's another part of this movie that feels very old fashioned. Like if he was a character in like a 1920s silent movie, he would feel less out of place, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Cause he's just like this dastardly guy, you know? He reminds me of the bat. Yes. The yeah, way yeah. He comes in and he's like, I'm going to get you. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if it's that old-fashionedness that, like, pulls me out or just the fact that, like, he feels like he's not a horror villain. I don't know. It's it's tough. Like, I, I haven't come around to your way of thinking, but I'm clearly not drawing you over to my way of thinking either. Um, because basically this is just coming down to, I thought it was scary, I didn't. I think we need to figure out a way to look at what the filmmaker's intent was. Like, because, you know, again, coming back to the wedding dress scene, unambiguously, that's a scene that's supposed to scare the audience. And I think, like, if you think about, there's a shot that um, is in the climax where Janet and Christine are up in the bedroom and they see Paul coming. Mm -hmm. And he is silhouetted, has a gun, and um, is walking, not fast, but very purposefully. Yeah. And, like, Janet knows what's up. Christina's like, Paul, you've come back for me, because she thinks it's an apparition. Um, and just the way that the camera is, is stationary on the hallway as he's walking through. Like, it's very... That's, I think, why also it felt like a home invasion feeling of, he's coming, there's nothing you can do. The only thing that saves them is the fact that, oh, hey, Alexis is still alive. Right, yeah, and, like, that shot, you know, he steps into, like, an underlight, and it's... I think at least part of that shot is still all woozy from being from Christine's point of view. It's tough for me because if Alexis just barely, like, managed to cut the power and then fell over dead, and then, like, you know, the lights went out in the room and the rest of the movie was about, like, Christine and Janet having to, like, evade Paul throughout the house in a kind of, like, Michael Myers-y kind of way, that would have clinched it as horror for me. But because what then happens is Paul is like, ah, curse you, Alexis, and, like, comes down because Alexis is, like, spooking him through the speaker, pretending that, like, he's a ghost now. And then the rest of the climax is just, like, fight shoot him up 
between Alexis and Paul, that really changes the mood of that whole climax kind of immediately and switches it away from Mm -hmm. horror into, you know, good guy versus bad guy kind of fight. Um, And that's maybe for me why I didn't feel the thing that you're feeling with Mm -hmm. the home invasion stuff is because they kind of pull out of it too quickly for me. Yeah. I mean, like at that point, like you don't know help is on the way because Janet called fucking Martin. Sure. You don't know the police are coming. You don't know like who's coming, if anyone is coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but because we find out that Alexis is, you know... Not quite dead yet. Yeah, and he's not, like... He's less dead than you thought he was, and he has enough energy for, like, uh, an ending climactic fight before then he dies, right? Which is very, like, very much a Hollywood movie kind of thing. I think, like, one thing that's really emblematic of, like, our two different takeaways from this movie is, like, I didn't get any kind of hint or implication or anything of anything supernatural about the Raven. Like, it's spooky at the start, and it's clearly meant to be, and it's clearly kind of, like, part of his... Shtick. Shtick of, like, putting people off guard and stuff. But I just figured it was a really well-trained Raven. Whereas, I feel like you came away feeling like the Raven was some sort of familiar, and, like, maybe Alexis was, like, a real warlock or something. I don't think that. I just think, like... They're making something up with this raven. Like, the raven's more than it seems. Yeah, and I didn't get any of that at all. And so I think that really is, like, a good synecdoche for our, our like, yeah disagreement that we're having sure. here. I mean, like, that's, like, the way that the raven is kind of following Christine on the beach in the first bit. The way that it kind of introduces Christine into the house Mm -hmm. when uh, she goes to visit Alexis the first time. And then when Alexis is like, I don't longer need you, my friend. And he flies through the window at the end. Like there's just clearly like something. It feels like that they're trying to do something. Right. And I just, all of that to me just read as well-trained pet. Okay. Um, So this is what I'm saying though, is like, we're seeing the same things and we're, you know, interpreting the story and we're not like nobody here like missed something. Right. It's just the takeaways are very different. Um, If I, you know, ranked this as horror, I'd end up kind of ranking it low down on the list simply because like most of it isn't. And like there are large parts of it that just aren't and are just like a different kind of movie entirely. And, it, you know, and for a lot of the movie, for a good stretch of the movie, the movie's not trying to scare you in any way. Like, it's just kind of more of a, like, conspiracy thriller mystery kind of thing of, like, well, is this detective going to unmask Alexis or, or you know, where's this going? What's his plan? Etc. And I don't want to rank this movie low because I think this is a really good movie. I think everyone should go see it. I think you should go to the Scream Scene playlist and watch it. I really enjoyed this movie. But, like, you know, up against, like, it has to go beneath the uninvited, at least, because the uninvited's real. Um, <laughs> this movie's fake. No, I'm just, I'm just yeah, yeah. goofing. So that's, um, that's kind of my thing, is, like, if, if you really want to rank it, I'm not going to be predisposed to ranking it too highly. Okay. Well, then how about I, I go through where I was thinking for the range. Okay. And if you're like, no, I really do think it's supposed to go, like, near the house of mystery, (laughs) then at that point we can, like, be like, okay, maybe it's not horror then. So where were you looking then, Sarah? So I agree with you that this should not go above The Uninvited. Mm -hmm. The Uninvited is at number 30. 
Below that is Dead of Night, which is that anthology movie, the yep. British one. Yeah. Um, and again, to the amazing Mr. X, it's less comfortable, but I think Dead of Night still, like, is just, should go above. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. On a sidebar... The Spiritualist is a better title for this movie. Yeah, The Amazing Mr. X. His name is just Alexis. Yeah, he's not... It's not Little Bit of X, it's Little Bit of Alexis. Yeah, like he's not um, Alexis Xavier or something, right? Like, there's no Mr. X, that phrase is never sort of said. Yeah. And like, you know, it's not like... He's the amazing Mr. X. Like, he doesn't really have a show. He has a business. You know what I mean? And his business is just called Alexis. Alexis. Yep. <laughs> I think he. I think his title, he gives himself his, like, psychic consultant or something like that. So I, I went down and I knew that this shouldn't go below the black room at number 40. Oh, okay. Because that, so that's a period piece. It was very well put together. It also had some conspiracy going on, some crime stuff going on. I just think that the spiritualist um, is much better well-constructed in terms of a, the film medium than the Black Room. The Black Room is written very, very well, but the spiritualist is, is filmed very, very well. So honestly, like, between 30 and 40, my preferable spot is above the 1941 Jekyll and Hyde and below... The Man Who Changed His Mind at 33. So I would slot this in at 34. So I think if we were just ranking movies, you know, like, just based on their quality as movies, I think you're in the right ballpark. I might even put this just below Dead of Night, if that's what we were doing. But because I'm still not sold on the idea of this as horror, I look at what's on our miscellaneous list, right? And... There's actually a lot more down there than I thought. It's getting really long. Yep. It'll get longer. Yep, guaranteed. Um, but this kind of, to me, had, like, you know, me thinking of movies like uh, The Door with Seven Locks or uh, The Mysterious Doctor that Stoloff directed, um, The Undying Monster, certainly, uh, Ghost Ship, Man in Half Moon Street, stuff like that. Man in Half Moon Street's actually really interestingly comparable just because it still has the like charming man taking advantage of women kind of angle to it but you know if we are going to rank this i think it has to go below movies that are taking their premises more seriously and it's funny that you brought up kind of the black room uh which is at number 40 uh because you know above that we have like the student of prague from 1926 which is like of the three students of Prague we have, is, like, the most expressionisty, right? Like, really goes for that stuff. Below the Black Room is House of Dracula. And you could make an argument, maybe, that House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, we have all the Monster Rally movies just here in a section, which I didn't realize. You could make this argument that they're more horror because, like, oh, well, they have real monsters. But, like, none of those movies really if we're really being honest with ourselves, are really making much of an effort to be scary. Like, they've kind of devolved into just Saturday matinee kitty stuff by that point. There's stuff in them that's good, but they aren't, like... You can tell that nobody really cares. 
right? Like, well, like, okay, let's think about House of Dracula and compare when Dracula or Baron whatever is um, approaching the chick playing the piano, and right. she starts to have visions of beyond the pale, and right. it goes a little spooky and all that. Compare that scene to um, not even the wedding just coming out of the closet, but like when. Christine reacts to Martin playing some music, and it just so happens to be um, a song that Paul would play on the piano. And it's again like Midnight in Sonata, or like it's, some kind uh, of fucking it's, like spooky shit. It's Prelude by Chopin, I believe, which is the same song that is the running motif in Picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah. Um, but, but still, so it's some spooky shit, and she like freaks out, and it's very tense, and the way that the lighting and everything really furthers that tension, compare that scene to the House of Dracula. Yeah. So where I'm kind of coming down on this is like, yeah, the monsters are real, but like those movies are very half-assed if we want to be like really honest with ourselves. Whereas this isn't. Like this movie clearly was not half-assed. And the scenes that are spooky, as you just pointed out, are spookier than the spooky scenes in these other movies. Like, even if I don't agree that this is a horror movie, at least not 100% a horror movie, I, I'm willing to, like, say it might be a horror blend, you know, with some other <laughs> things, which is typical of this period, too, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, we've we've seen that. But regardless, whatever parts of this movie are horror are better at being horror than these movies here. But I don't think it should go above Student of Prague, which in addition to being very effective and having good special effects and having, like, the expressionistic lighting is also seriously engaging with, you know, he really has sold his soul to the devil or whatever, right? I think um, if we want to discuss, like, engaging with its own premise, I think The Black Room takes its premise pretty seriously and, and does it really well, especially with Karloff's acting. And I think The Black Room... Versus this is horror, you know, I think there are scenes in The Amazing Mr. X that are, it, it, I think it's funny if I saw, call it Amazing Mr. X and you call it The Spiritualist. Sure. I, there are scenes in The Amazing Mr. X that are scarier than scenes in Black Room, but ultimately the sense of menace in Black Room is more. Because, yeah. like, for one thing, Karloff, like, really does kill that dude and take his identity, and, His own brother. And for another, like, Alexis is our villain for most of The Amazing Mr. X, like two-thirds. And he's not really, like, threatening. He's a con artist, right? He's charming. And then Paul comes in, and Paul is, like, threatening, but Paul is also, like, kind of almost like a, a, a plot device. Almost kind of nakedly there because Alexis is too charming. And so it's like they realized by two-thirds of the way in the movie that we weren't going to be, that we were almost like on Alexis's side and we wouldn't want to see him trying to kill the girls. So we bring in this other guy to be the villainous force at that point. So where I'm kind of feeling is below the black room above House of Dracula, if that's an okay compromise with you. I think so, yeah. It feels like a very good spot here. Okay, so entering the list at number 41 is The Amazing Mr. X, a.k.a. The Spiritualist. From 1948, directed by Bernard Vorhaus. 
If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you agree with Ben that this is not horror, you can submit an appeal through our Ask Box on Tumblr. And if you want to further support my position that it's horror, you can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to further the discussion, you can reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Absolutely. We would love to hear what you guys think, especially because this movie is easily available for everybody to watch, right? Yeah. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. And you can listen to the show through whatever podcast app you prefer by subscribing through our RSS feed. You can help the show out by leaving us a rating or a review on the podcasting service that you use. Uh, Five-star ratings, positive reviews... Uh, help the show algorithmically get pushed to people. And in our current AI-dominated hellscape, that is the only way to be successful, is to game those algorithms. (laughs) Uh, Another way you can help the show without gaming the algorithms is by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. Because, uh, as you know, we live in a society. And that society... (laughs) We live in a society, Ben! And that society uses money. And we need that money to live, uh, as well as to make the podcast. Uh, So you can sign up to become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. But patrons at higher levels, 5 and 10 respectively, get access to special bonus content. Uh, We've been putting out, you know, a lot of really good bonus audio, I think, the last couple weeks. If we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we will begin to do horror-adjacent movies as, like, specials. Uh, sort of once a month. And in those, we can cover, you know, like the fake spiritualist movies that are kind of related to this movie. So if you want to see us take on some movies that, you know, are not horror, but just horror adjacent, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast and kick in a few bucks. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are watching a movie that its very existence has aggravated me because of the confusion that it causes me on a regular basis. Okay. Uh, It's The Creeper Ah. from 1948, directed by Gene Yarbrough. But Ben, Rondo Hatton has passed away. And the movie isn't about The Creeper at all and doesn't feature Rondo Hatton, despite having a title that's the name of his character from those movies and being directed by the guy who directed those movies. No, instead this one's about cats. (gasps) Cats? We will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!